Hey there, podcast people. You're listening to the third episode of Under Our Feet, and if you've made it this far, it must mean that you're enjoying the show. If so, I have a quick ask for you. Leave a rating and review. I know, I know, you've been listening to podcasts for years and years and you've never done that before, but it really helps. It's such a low-effort way to support the show. So go ahead and tap those stars. While you do, I'll read a review that someone posted after the second episode on Baraboo. This is from Caleb J. Redeman, who says, I really enjoy hearing about familiar places and their geological history, especially Devil's Lake. This podcast has provided explanations to questions I had never even thought of asking, and has certainly piqued my interest. Well, thanks, Caleb. I'm glad you're enjoying the show, and I hope you keep thinking of new questions to ask. As a reminder, you can head over to uofpod.org to contact me with anything I got wrong or any questions or interesting thoughts you have on Wisconsin's geology. I've gotten some feedback about a few mistakes I made in the last episode, thanks to Ethan Parrish and Bill Morgan. I referred in passing to rhyolite as an intrusive igneous rock, which means a rock that cools from milt underground. Rhyolite is actually an extrusive igneous rock. It cools from milt above ground, like in a volcanic eruption. It's compositionally the same chemicals as granite, which is intrusive, but its different cooling history leads to different minerals and structures forming. I also suggested that limestones form in deeper water than clays. This is possible, but in most ocean settings, limestones form in shallower waters than clays, which accumulate out on the deep abyssal plains in the middle of the ocean. Please keep the feedback coming. I definitely want to know if I'm not getting something right. Also at uofpod.org, you can find a link to support the show on Patreon, where you can get cool benefits starting at a dollar a month. I've listened to a lot of NPR pledge drives, so I know the drill. Under Our Feet relies on the support of people like you to keep bringing you informative and timely content. For the cost of just a cup of coffee each month, you too can become a patron of Under Our Feet and get a special bumper sticker. Speaking of which, thanks to the latest supporter on Patreon, Stephen Bry. Alright, today we're exploring the next chapter in Wisconsin's geologic story. This one took place about a billion years ago. What happened is kind of the opposite of our last two episodes, where collisions of tectonic plates crumpled up the Earth's crust and built mountains in proto-Wisconsin. Rather than coming together, this is a story about breaking up, or at least trying to. We'll get to what happened, and how and why, a little later on. It's a tale of volcanoes and a copper boom right here on the shores of Lake Superior. It's a good one, so let's get to it. Welcome to Under Our Feet, the podcast where we go deep into the earth and deep into time to seek out the geologic events and forces that shape the world around us. I'm Rudy Molinick, and this is Season 1, The Geology of Wisconsin. To start this story, I want to bring in someone whose name you might know if you've listened all the way to the end of the previous episodes, Jeremy Randolph Flagg. I am earth science faculty at Lynn Benton Community College out here in Oregon. I started my journey as a geologist alongside Rudy as an undergrad in southern Minnesota at Carleton College. So we've known each other for a long time, but when we first met, Jeremy had a very particular geologic problem. I came to Carleton, came, came to Southern Minnesota from Hawaii. And in Hawaii, on the island of Kauai where I grew up, basically all of the rocks are basalt, right? Like it's a volcanic island. The island is there because there's magma 
feeding up through the lithosphere, right? That's a whole other story. But everywhere you go, it's basalt. It's basalt, it's basalt, it's basalt, okay? You know how the expression goes, if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you grow up in Hawaii, everything looks like a basalt. Well, starting taking intro geology at Carleton, everything looked like basalt to me. That was just like synonymous with rock, basically. And so I was raising my hand in class, it's basalt and teachers saying, nope, that's a clay stone. Nope, that's sandstone. Nope, that's a uh, nice. Everything I assumed was basalt until eventually I learned my lesson. I realized that you don't see a whole ton of basalt in the Midwest because basalt is a volcanic rock. So Jeremy finally learned that he was really unlikely to see a volcanic rock in southern Minnesota. We'll learn more about the geology of that area in the next episode, but for now, just know that there are thick layers of sedimentary rock laid down upon each other in an ancient tropical ocean, and not really any basalt, the volcanic rock that's ubiquitous in Hawaii, until... We went on this field trip to Taylor's Falls, which I think is Minnesota, but it's right on the border. Yep, Taylor's Falls State Park is on the St. Croix River, right on the border with Wisconsin. On the Wisconsin side, it's called Interstate State Park. And it was a field trip, you know, we all pile in the in the vans, we, we drive there, we look around, and the way these field trips go is you just sort of kick around at the rocks, you know, with your with your buddies and try to try to figure out what's going on. And I kept thinking, man, I know everything looks like basalt, but this really looks like basalt. And, you know, but I, I learned my lesson. So when our instructor brought us all around and said, okay, what do we think this is? I kept quiet. I kept quiet. And everybody was, you know, we'd looked at different types of sedimentary rocks and everyone was looking around, trying to trying to relate it to somewhere else we'd been. And we were all wrong. And finally, our instructor, Barakat, said, this is basalt. And I lost my damn mind. Because where there's basalt, a volcanic rock, there's usually a volcano. But Jeremy and I had never heard of any volcanoes in Wisconsin or the Lake Superior region. Have you? But the reason I didn't expect it to be basalt is I couldn't figure out why we would have volcanic rocks the exact same as you get in Hawaii, why we would have those right on the Minnesota-Wisconsin border. Like, what the hell are these doing here? It just really struck me as, as this moment where I'm like, oh my God, there's something going on here that I don't know about. And I, th I think that's right. That's what you're gonna gonna tell us all about. That's right. Buckle in, because we have a great story, and it starts with this mystery. Why and when were there volcanoes in the upper Midwest? And there's one more mystery here that's part of the same story. In the 1940s and 50s, scientists began using a technology designed to detect World War II submarines to measure how magnetic the Earth was in various places. They flew a plane above the landscape, towing a device that measured how strongly magnetic the Earth's subsurface was. This was a useful technology for finding submarines because the metal in the submarine would be a little bit magnetic and so they could, they could pick it out. But here we're looking down into the Earth to see if there's any iron in the rocks. They also did a similar thing with gravity, so they flew something over that measured how strong the gravity was at various places, and that tells you about how dense and heavy the rocks underground are. And what they found was a long line of high-gravity, high-magnetism bedrock stretching from Lake Superior all the way down to Oklahoma. 
Okay, so we have these volcanic rocks seemingly out of place on the Wisconsin-Minnesota border, and a magnetic and gravity anomaly extending hundreds of miles past that, suggesting something is going on underground with a lot of dense, highly magnetic rocks. It means there's even more of that volcanic basaltic lava all the way down to Oklahoma. And there's one more thing you should know. The Lake Superior region? It, it actually wound up being that this was the site of the first mineral rush in the United States. People, most people don't know this. They assume it was the gold rush in California. But in fact, it was the copper rush to the Keweenaw Peninsula in the 1840s. That's... Jim Miller. Yeah, I, I originally from Chicago and um, went to University of Illinois for my undergrad and then University of Minnesota for my PhD and finished in 86. I started with the Minnesota Geological Survey, which is part of the university, in 1983. And the focus, most of my work was mapping and petrologic studies of northeastern Minnesota. And then um, in 2008, I uh, left the survey and went to teach at UMD. That's the University of Minnesota at Duluth, right at the far southwest corner of Lake Superior. In the geology department there. And I just retired from there. Well, just retired. It's now five years. <laughs> I left there in 2016. And uh, now I live in Thunder Bay, Ontario. So we've got three things framing this story. First, mysterious volcanoes in the middle of the continent. Second, the rock from these volcanoes extends from Lake Superior to Oklahoma. And third, something has concentrated vast amounts of copper. This is one of the only places in the world with large quantities of native or totally pure copper, which means that before the large-scale European settlement and mining of the region started, you could find chunks of pure copper just lying on the ground. As a teaser, these three frames are all related, but we're not quite there yet. Let's start with the strange volcanic rocks, the ones that look a lot like the rocks Jeremy remembered growing up with in Hawaii, and those people flying planes over the continent in the 1940s and 50s, measuring deviations in gravity and the magnetic field caused by these basalts. So we know it from gravity, basically, just from the density of these rocks sitting in otherwise kind of a granitic crust. And so it creates an extraordinarily high, one of the highest gravity signatures in North America. And then uh, also it has a very strong, most of these these mafic rocks have a fair amount of magnetite in them. And so they have a very strong magnetic signal as well. And so when you look at the aeromagnetics, that gives you a very clear sense of where these are. The reality is, is that we knew about this mass of high-density rocks back in the 1940s and 50s when we first started measuring gravity over North America. And in fact, this this anomaly became known as the mid-continent gravity high. And this was pre-plate tectonics. Pre-plate tectonics. Anyone who's taken a geology class in the last 50 years knows that the Earth's crust is made up of tectonic plates. They're brittle and can be made of continental or oceanic rocks. And they kind of float around on top of the mantle, which is somewhere between a liquid and a solid, but it flows over geologic time. As these plates float, they crash and grind against each other, and sometimes even break in two. Today, to anyone who's learned about this stuff, we take plate tectonics as a given. Of course that's how the world works. It's as self-evident and foundational as the fact that gravity holds us down on the Earth and makes things fall from the sky. It neatly explains why Africa and South America seem to match up, and why there are earthquakes in some places and not others. 
But it wasn't always this way. This is part of what makes geology so interesting. It's a very young science, and there's a lot we still don't know. It turns out that plate tectonics, this thing about the world that's so obvious, it's an idea that's only been accepted as a consensus since the 1960s. Before then, geologists had some kind of wild ideas for why there were mountains with ocean animal fossils on the top of them, or evidence of glaciers in temperate areas like Wisconsin. One of these was called geosyncline theory, and it held that the Earth's crust wasn't moving laterally, like in plate tectonics, but just vertically, up and down. The land surface would rise and fall, putting ocean floor on tall peaks, or elevating Wisconsin to the point where it was cold enough to host a massive glacier. This is a little bit wild, and I think it necessitated there being giant caverns underground sometimes. Anyways, I got excited and that's a bit of a tangent, but the important thing is that when we first discovered these heavy magnetic basaltic rocks deep under the mid-continent, we didn't really have a good explanation for how they got there. But we didn't know what, why it was there, why it's sitting in the middle of this big arcing scar in the middle of North America of, of these matrix rocks. And it wasn't until the plate tectonic theory came along in the 60s that it's like, aha, duh, okay, this used to be an attempt of North America to break apart. And there was a paper in 1973, Chase and Gilmer, where they first speculated that this, this mid-continent gravity high is actually a, a, a relic rift. And they gave it the name, the mid-continent rift. So a decade or two after we'd first identified these strange rocks, we finally had an explanation for why they were there. A rift. Some force was trying to split North America in two, and it wasn't big money in politics. And this split, it was centered right on Lake Superior. Stable continents being rifted apart right down the middle, it isn't unheard of, but it's definitely less common than some other tectonic events. Today, we're actually seeing it happen in real time in Africa. Parts of Somalia and Ethiopia are starting to be rifted from the western part of Africa. This gives us what we call the Great Rift Valley. Today, it's still land in between the high walls of the valley, but sometime in the future, the East African Rift will go far enough that it becomes a thin sea. If it continues, then after some millions of years, the continent will be irrevocably separated, like the Americas and Africa and Europe being separated across the Atlantic Ocean. Everyone's heard about how, you know, uh, the Atlantic Ocean has been uh, uh, widening because of the uh, rifting of continents on either side of, of the Atlantic Ocean. So knowing that, that base, that process was, was happening uh, a billion years ago in the Lake Superior region. And it was a, a, a large chunk that kind of arcs from Oklahoma, these volcanic rocks that filled the rift. You can trace them from Oklahoma up through the Lake Superior region and then down into lower Michigan. And it's only exposed in the Lake Superior region where we see the volcanics and also some of the magmas that got emplaced beneath the volcanics and made um, intrusions. And so, uh, but that's all exposed in the, on the flanks of the, of the Lake Superior Basin. So there was a rift. It started here in Wisconsin and the Lake Superior area, and it went so far that the valley extended down into Oklahoma, and it was filling up with volcanic rocks. Imagine it being like Iceland, but in the middle of the continent instead of the middle of the ocean. As the two sides pulled apart, something had to fill in that space. So magma from the Earth's mantle got pulled up and eventually erupted onto the surface, 
and placing all those volcanic rocks down this valley. So why is this happening? And when was it happening? At, at about, just leading up to about a billion years ago, there was another supercontinent being constructed, one we call Rodinia. And it, it, it had its full collective mass probably about 1 billion years ago. So 1.1 billion years ago, 100 million years prior to that complete construction of Rodinia, we were still putting pieces together and, and merging continental masses. And that's kind of what's ironic is that this rift happened during the construction of Rodinia, during the amalgamation of these continental masses. Rodinia is one of those supercontinents, a precursor to the much more famous Pangaea. So as it's being put together a few hundred million years after the Baraboo interval that we talked about in the last episode of Under Our Feet, something strange starts to happen in North America, right around 1.1 billion years ago. If you were to be up in space, looking down on the planet in super fast forward, you'd see pieces of land in the ocean moving towards each other. What's now North America starts kind of at a latitude where it is now, something like 40-ish degrees above the equator. As part of this pre-supercontinent, over a span of like 30 million years, North America moves down to the equator. During this time, if you were to squint down from your spaceship, you might start to see little spots of red blossoming in what's now Lake Superior. They'd grow and connect, arcing far across the continent. You're seeing the rift. But why, in this time when land masses were coming together into the supercontinent, Rodinia, why is there a rift? There have been a few ideas over the last six decades. The first... Now, there's been the, the idea that a lot of people have ascribed the rift itself to the impact of a mantle plume. A mantle plume is what's going on in Hawaii, which would explain why those rocks at Taylor's Falls or Interstate State Park on the St. Croix River made Jeremy a little homesick. A mantle plume is also called a hot spot. Something happens near the Earth's core, sending up a jet of really hot material to the bottom of the crust. This hot material starts melting away the crust above it, eventually forming volcanoes at the land surface. With a big, you know, initially a big plume head, high energy head, and that in fact caused part of the rifting was the impact of that plume head. Um, but things that don't make sense with that is that like, other plumes that have created flood basalts more in more modern times, like the Siberian Traps and the Deccan of India and the Parana in South America and so on, that magmatism only lasts like at the most five million years. You know, and in the in the Deccan, it's like two million years. It's really fast and furious. Whereas the Mid-Continent Rift magmatism lasted 30 million years. And that just doesn't jibe with the a single plume kind of doing its thing. And the continent was moving. So how, you know, how would that, we think plumes are fixed in the, in the, in the interior of the earth, right? They don't really move other than up. So that, that never kind of makes, that, that's the big but in, in the whole story of a, of a mantle plume origin. Yeah, so what he's saying is mantle plumes are generally fixed to a position on the earth's core. And the tectonic plates are moving around relative to that. That's why Hawaii is a chain of islands. As the tectonic plate moves over the fixed hotspot, it leaves behind a track showing the motion of that plate. And remember that from your spaceship, you've seen the area where the rift is happening move like 40 degrees of latitude. That's like from New York City down to Quito, Ecuador. 
it doesn't make sense if the plume is fixed that this rift would stay centered at Lake Superior while Lake Superior moves from New York City to Quito. To visualize what's going on with the plume idea, it's kind of like if you imagine having a big pizza dough, and you're holding it out in front of you and your friend comes and starts to poke it up from the middle. The dough, however thick it would be, would start to thin out at that point, and if he keeps pushing long enough, he could actually punch through the crust and make a hole. But if you're holding out the dough, you'd want to move it away before your frisky friend ruins pizza night, and then there's no hole. So the mantle plume theory doesn't really make sense because the plate got moved away from where the hot spot was. So while the mantle plume theory would explain Jeremy's nostalgia for Hawaii, it just doesn't quite add up. So there must be another explanation. And just a quick definition for you, geologists sometimes call the interior of North America Laurentia, especially when they're talking about the deep past. So it's been more thought that what we do now think is hap- has happened is that when we were constructing Rodinia, we're putting all these continental masses, these thick slabs of low conductivity crust over the mantle, like throwing a, a blanket over the mantle and not letting the heat escape. So in that time of constructing Rodinia, we were overheating the mantle underneath the, the, the landmass of Rodinia. And so the, the, the mantle was superheated. So any rupture in the crust would let these highly uh, overheated rocks partially melt and rush to the surface. So it seems more likely that there was some, some torquing of North America that kind of ripped this part of Laurentia, we call inner Laurentia away from the main mass and allowed these magmas to upwell. And they look like mantle plumes in geochemistry and so so forth because again it came from a superheated mantle and so that's that's been kind of where we're moving now and in the idea that that this wasn't a singular plume generated event but it was some more global tectonic uh event that was happening during a time during a time of overheated mantle and other evidence of that is as there are other 1.1 billion year old events around the globe that in South Africa and Australia and so on that also speak to this idea that the whole mantle underneath Rodinia was just overly hot and uh, allowed any, any kind of opening would allow magmas to rush up and intrude into the crust. The way to think about this is that the heat is continually being generated from radioactivity deep within the earth. Usually it radiates out and escapes through the crust. But with Rodinia coming together... All that thick continental crust in one place acted like a blanket, trapping the heat beneath the center of the large landmass. So the hot mantle was primed and ready down there, waiting to escape at the slightest opportunity. Then something happening far away from the Lake Superior region pulled on North America just a little bit, creating a slight weakness. The really hot mantle below it leapt at the chance and started injecting volcanoes and creating this mid-continent rift. To return to the pizza dough metaphor and stretch it a bit, you walk into the kitchen and you see your friend, who for some reason doesn't want to eat pizza, tearing the pizza dough in half by pulling it from either end. As tears start to form, sauce, and I don't know where it's coming from, this metaphor is getting away from me a bit, but sauce starts to bubble up onto the surface. Maybe I'm stretching this metaphor a little too far, and it's starting to break apart. But we had an opportunity of a, a period where we could create tension in the crust and break it up and 
let mantle-derived magmas reach the surface. But why the rift started, it's only half the story. I always say, why isn't Duluth a seaside resort? We should have been on the edge of a huge ocean because we were making a new ocean basin. Like I said earlier when I was talking about East Africa and its rift, eventually it's going to fill with water and become an ocean. But that never happened with our mid-continent rift since, well, it's still in the mid-continent. What happened? Instead of opening up into a full-blown ocean basin, it shoved itself back on, it got shoved back on itself. And the reason for that was what is now uh, South America, a continental mass called Amazonia, and uh, Rio, La, Rio Plata, which is now in Argentina, those were colliding with the east side of Laurentia and creating what we call the Grenville Mountains. And we can see the, uh, the Grenville coming through Quebec and then into the Adirondacks of upstate New York. And then, then they get kind of messed up in the Appalachian younger fold belts uh, to the south. But so that, that collisional event that, that caused uh, the building of the Grenville Mountains shoved, shoved that chunk that had broken away from Laurentia back on itself and it, it aborted the rifting. So before the rift could fully form and fully create a new ocean separating the Great Plains from the East Coast and give Jim his Duluth Seaside Resort, another continent, what is now South America, slammed onto the eastern side of North America. The pressure and force of this collision created a mountain range in what geologists now call the Grenville Orogeny, sort of a precursor to the Appalachian Mountains, and it prevented the rift from growing any more. To continue to stretch this pizza dough metaphor even further, you come into your kitchen and you see your devious friend starting to tear the dough, but you want to save pizza night, or the North American continent as it were, so you run over and you push on the outside of his hands to stop him from ruining dinner. That's what happened when Proto-South America slammed into the eastern coast of Proto-North America, stopping the rift in its tracks. And to make this feature even more geologically unique, it's the deepest failed rift that geologists ever found. It got really close to being an ocean. So now, today in 2021, it's a billion years later. Why should we still care about this failed rift? Wisconsin and Minnesota aren't coastal states on opposite sides of a vast ocean. So what's the big deal? Well, hopefully by episode three of Under Our Feet, you're starting to see how these events in the deep, deep past can still be very present in our present. Let's lay it out and start with the most obvious example. Those rocks at Taylor's Falls that made Jeremy pine for home. Those no longer mysterious volcanic rocks in the mid-continent. Rocks from the rift form the backbones of scenic landscapes. All over there are these fresh volcanic rocks that look like they could have come out of Iceland, you know, last week. You can see them at Palisade Head on the north shore of Lake Superior. They make up the famous Sleeping Giant landform in Thunder Bay, Ontario, Jim's hometown. The beautiful St. Louis River in Jay Cook State Park near Duluth cuts right through these basalts. Isle Royale and the Keweenaw Peninsula of Michigan rise up out of Lake Superior because they're made of this hard-to-erode basalt. In fact, Isle Royale and the Keweenaw Peninsula are two parts of the same geologic structure. As the rift grew wider and deeper, the layers of rock slumped down, forming a broad U-shape. I'm talking in two dimensions to help visualize this, but it's happening in three dimensions, over a huge area. To return to our pizza dough analogy, perhaps for one too many times, imagine taking your piece of dough and you're 
stretching it out. As you pull, widening it, it sags in the middle in front of you. Now, while you're still holding it out in front of you, someone starts putting on the sauce, aka the lava, and that pushes the dough down even more, forming a U, sagging in the middle. Isle Royale and the Keweenaw Peninsula are the tips of that U, the edges of the rift. So the scenic beauty, the draw of Lake Superior, is due in no small part to this billion-year-old failed rift. As a matter of fact, Lake Superior itself exists very much because of the Mid-Continent Rift. Once that U stopped getting wider and deeper, it filled up with water. Then sand weathered, eroded, and washed off the high ground all around, filling up the cavity of that U with soft sandstones about 500 million years ago. Then when the Ice Age began about 2.5 million years ago, and glaciers began periodically invading into the Wisconsin area from the north, and we'll talk a lot more about this in a later episode, the glaciers ran into that soft sandstone, and... And when the glaciers came through, they saw this sand, and it's just like, whoa. You know, they were, they were headed straight south, but then they found this east-west trough of sand and got diverted and went down and basically excavated what is now Lake Superior over a two million year period. If you look at a map, you'll notice that Lake Superior doesn't run north-south like Lake Michigan. And it has these remote scenic locales like Isle Royale and the Keweenaw Peninsula. And it's very much because of the failed rift. But I've been withholding, and there's one more important and very lucrative consequence of the rift that we need to talk about. To many, the Keweenaw Peninsula and much of the Northwoods is synonymous with copper country. Well, the, the Mid-Continent Rift is known for hosting native copper deposits, which are, they're, they're like nowhere else on Earth. So something happened with this rift that concentrated native or really pure elemental copper in a way we don't see almost anywhere else on Earth. As Jim told us at the beginning of the episode, copper in the Northwoods was one of the first big mineral rushes in the U.S., getting a jump of just a few years over gold in California. What put it there? The origin of the copper appears to be from the, the, uh, the downsagging of these lava flows, right? They come out and they spill on the surface as horizontal sheets, but as, as they pile on top of each other, the whole thing starts to sag into a trough. That's the U-shape we were just talking about, the sagging pizza dough full of sauce. The more sauce you pile on, the deeper the dough will sag. The stuff at the bottom, it gets buried deep below more lava flows. And like we learned at Baraboo, when things get buried deep in the crust, heat and pressure can start to change them. That's metamorphism. But there's one more agent of metamorphism that we need to talk about for this story. That's water. Even deep in the Earth's crust, H2O is present. And when it gets hot, it can do a number on the mineralogy of the rocks down there. And so in the very deep parts of the crust, at the bottoms of these, of these volcanic piles, um, the metamorphic waters that would be kind of heated up there would strip the copper out of the basalts. And then the, the, those fluids would, would flow up the limbs of these troughs. And then when they reached a certain depth, they either the water temperature changed or the pH changed or something, but it caused it to drop its copper. So it, it just, it, it basically created this horizon of mineralization at a certain depth from these copper-rich fluids that were generated from the deep parts of the, of the lava flows. So that's, that's where they came from. 
To break that down, water gets really hot deep in the bottom of the U, which now sits under Lake Superior and is made up of layers of lava flows from the rifting. That water leaches out copper from the rocks and is saturated with it. The pressure forces it to flow up between those layers of lava towards the tip of the U. At a certain point, something changes like the water temperature or its acidity, and it can't hold the copper it's carrying anymore, so it drops it and it leaves behind vast amounts of pure elemental copper, which barely needed to be smelted or refined at all before it got put to use. Perfect for a dawning electrical age. But electricity for Euro-American settlers was not the first use of this copper, not by far. In fact, um, they know that a lot of the native copper that's been, that you find in, in um, early native uh, dwellings or settlements or whatever, all throughout the North America and into South America, came from the Lake Superior region. Scientists have worked out by measuring minute quantities of trace elements in the copper artifacts found in native communities all over the Americas that Keweenaw copper from Lake Superior was the source. Metals from different geologic sources will have small differences in their trace elemental composition. It's like a fingerprint. So archaeologists are able to work out sources of copper in the ancient world by checking these fingerprints in any copper artifacts they find. And by doing so, they can even start to map out trade routes and demonstrate just how interconnected the ancient native communities were. We're also learning how these early indigenous Americans got their copper out of the ground. And there were a lot of diggings from uh, you know, Paleolithic Indians that, that had exposed these, and they mined it. That's how they, they used to, they, they would get it out of the ground. It's like, you know, copper is a very, native copper is very malleable, so you can't just break off a chunk. Um, so what they would do is they'd light these fires on top of the rock and then they would throw water on it to spall chunks of copper off of it by, by flash quenching it. But at some point, maybe around 3,000 years ago, the indigenous people of the Lake Superior region generally stopped mining copper to make tools. Recent research suggests that the exceptional purity of the Lake Superior copper actually was its downfall here. Because the native copper was so malleable, it made copper tools that were less durable than their stone equivalents. So because the copper up here is so pure, there's no naturally occurring alloy to help harden it. Like bronze, which is an alloy, a mixture of copper with other metals that makes it harder and stronger. Keweenaw copper, it's not as strong as it could be. At the time of the arrival of the first white people in the area, the French voyagers, Indigenous use of copper was generally limited to pieces that were found on the ground and then shaped for ritualized functions. It was regarded as a gift of the Manitous, not a resource to intensively mine. When the early Europeans in the area saw this copper, though, they weren't thinking of the Manitous. They were just thinking about the money it would mint. Early European explorers saw these things and um, knew that there was copper around. Well, most copper deposits in the world are not native copper, but they're copper sulfide. And uh, for example, in the, the, the great copper districts in Wales, it was all copper sulfide. And, th and they'd find native copper kind of on the fringes of the deposits. So early, early geologists, if you can call them that, or explorers, um, uh, prospectors, basically thought, well, we'll just look for, you know, if, if there's this native copper, there must be some copper sulfide around somewhere. So because these are tracers, right? They're, they're vectors to where the, the big ore body is. But, but they never could find such a thing. 
Copper sulfide is copper ore where the element copper is bonded to sulfur. This ore is way more common than the native copper that we find around Lake Superior. So no one thought that there would be enough of the native copper that it could be something you could just go out and mine on its own. And then they, they hired Douglas Houghton, the first state geologist of Michigan, to come and do a, because uh, there's a lot of land speculators and people are saying, oh, you know, you got to come to the Kiwara and buy, buy this land because it's full of copper, you know, and everybody's trying to make a buck. But so Houghton was the first one that actually made a scientific report of this, of these occurrences. And he concluded that, um, no, there is no copper sulfide of any significance anywhere around here, but there are, in his words, mineable quantities of native copper. And this, the rush was on. And once the rush was on, there was no turning back, not for the landscape and not for the indigenous people that were being dispossessed of their homelands. This was like 1842, and the next summer, you know, uh, there, there was no Sioux locks at that time, so people had to portage up the St. Mary's River into Lake Superior, and, and, uh, but, but the Keweenaw Peninsula was overrun by prospectors starting in 1842, and the, the boom went all the way through World War I, and then what happened after that is that these big copper deposits that we look at out west in Utah, Arizona, Chile, they were of just such enormity that they couldn't, these, these small, deep underground mines where you're getting veins of copper just couldn't compete with the big operations that, that happened out, um, out west. So they, they just kind of, it was just an economy of scale that they couldn't compete. And so they, they shut down the last mine, I think shut down in 1972. But while those mines were running, which was roughly concurrent with the iron mining boom as well, a lot of wealth was being generated. Duluth, Minnesota was the main port of Lake Superior. Those Sioux locks that Jim mentioned earlier were built to connect Lake Superior to Lake Huron for large boat traffic, so no more portaging. And from there, the waterways gave easy access to the Erie Canal and the East Coast markets. In the early 20th century, there were years when the port at Duluth was busier than the port of New York City, and in 1905, it said that Duluth had more millionaires per capita than any other place in the United States. But this was a mining boom, and like we talked about in our first episode about iron, mining booms never last forever. The native copper was worked out, and the Lake Superior copper mines couldn't compete with the much larger operations in Butte, Arizona, or Chile. Like we talked about with iron, you can still see this today. Signs of former prosperity now sit empty and neglected. Duluth's downtown, built into a steep hill overlooking the western tip of Lake Superior, is full of tall brick buildings. But those buildings aren't full anymore. They just hint at a past where they were. When the mining left, so did a lot of the wealth. It's no wonder, then, that a new proposal to mine copper on the north shore of Lake Superior is generating a lot of interest and a lot of controversy. This proposed mining isn't native copper, like the original ore in the region. Instead, it's that copper sulfide, that more common ore, but it's one that comes with a cost. Yeah, that's the big, you know, controversy about the Duluth complex deposits. Um, uh, and, and those are copper sulfides. And, 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 and again, in most of nature, metals are collected in, in the form of sulfur minerals. Sulfur is the great it, it's we, we talk about metals being calcophile because they like sulfur. They like to be, if sulfur's at, around, they will bond with sulfur. 
and make make sulfide minerals. And you talked about the, the, the proterozoic. Well, it's even the uh, the reason that the Duluth complex deposits are where they are is because you know these magmas that came out of the mantle they have a fair amount of metals in them, copper and nickel and cobalt and precious metals and so on, but they don't have a lot of sulfur. And so in the absence of sulfur, they're just going to be diffused into in low, low concentrations in other minerals. However, when they encounter a sulfur rich area, they will bake the sulfur out of the rock they're intruding. And then that's, they, they enrich the magma and sulfur, which then causes sulfur, metal rich sulfides to, to deposit. And so in, in the case of the Duluth complex deposits, that Duluth complex magma encountered these, uh, these black shales that have a lot of pyrite in them, iron sulfide, that sits right on top of the iron formation. This is what Marcia talked about in the iron episode. These black shales with a lot of pyrite, they also had the rare earth elements we might someday need for batteries and green technologies. But here, the magmas of the Mid-Continent Rift intruded into these black shales, and when they did, they pulled out some of the sulfur, and metals like copper immediately glommed onto it. This led to the deposition of copper sulfide in northern Minnesota, right near the edges of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area and the headwaters of the Mississippi River. Up by the, Masa- the eastern end of the Masabi Range, and that's where the, these deposits formed. Was the, They encountered these sulfur-rich rocks, baked the sulfur out of the country rock, uh, contaminated the, the magmas, and then they wound up depositing all these copper and nickel and cobalt and platinum and palladium and rich sulfur, sulfide minerals. And that's what they're proposing to, you know, to um, mine. Okay. It, it, there's, it's huge volumes. Honestly, the, the contained copper in the Duluth complex is in the top 10 deposits on earth, if not higher. It's, 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 it's an amazing amount of metal. It's rather low grade, but the tonnage is, is, it, it is mind-blowing how much there is there. And where there's metals, and when the economics are right, people will want to mine. But like I said earlier, mining sulfide minerals comes with a risk. Sulfide minerals can be very toxic if you don't handle them properly. And so, you know, uh, right now people are very nervous about, about, about extracting them. So when Twin Metals and Polymet proposed these sulfide mines near the Boundary Waters, it raised a lot of resistance from people, both those who like spending time in the pristine-feeling natural areas up there, and from the indigenous people whose cultures are based around clean water and manumen, or wild rice. They're rightfully worried that toxic sulfur-rich waste from this mining will spill over into the waters of an area known and loved for its clean lakes. But there are other worries and anxieties in copper country too. The mining booms over the last century and a half helped build up a lot of good lives, and the small town economies up there that relied on this mining have collapsed. That leaves a lot of people in northern Minnesota facing bleak prospects and hoping for something to come from those sulfide minerals. They're not going anywhere. They're going to be there forever until we mine them out, and then they'll be gone. <laughs> so, but yeah, but that's, that's kind of the current... Uh, uh, where we are, you know, native copper is gone. Iron, iron. That's the other thing too. Is you know the the Masabi range will probably be mined out in another thirty years, forty years, and then that whole that whole industry will shut down. The mining industry of, of the Masabi range will basically go away. 
unless this copper nickel gets brought forth. And then that's another hundred years of mining there to get those deposits extracted. But again, it's up to the people of the area to figure out whether they, they accept that now or I want to wait and see what happens. This highlights an irony of the Mid-Continent Rift's effect on us today. In effect, the Rift gives us two paths on which to set our economies and cultures. The first path is extraction. That's the path we've taken most often and with the most consequence in our history since the European settlement of the Lake Superior region. The second path is one blossoming more and more in the last 50 years since the copper and iron mines faded back. It's a path that walks or paddles along the cliffs and lakes set in the ancient mid-continent rift, a path that takes in the views and takes only what the land can safely give. In some ways, this sets up a political rift between people who want to base the economy on extraction of copper sulfide and the people who believe that the natural environment should be preserved. But it's simplistic to suggest that this is just a dichotomy, that it's necessarily one or the other. This land, it's... It's a treasure trove of, I mean, we use the earth, right? And we build houses out of timber and we conduct electricity through copper and we build skyscrapers out of iron. And, you know, so you need to get that stuff from somewhere. It's also a treasure trove of beauty and renewable resources like the wild rice. But Jim's point stands. We need materials from the earth. Try to imagine a world without copper conducting electricity, without iron in buildings, without the rare earth elements that power your computers and phones. It's a world that's unrecognizable and probably undesirable, unless you're a hardcore Luddite, but even Luddites use metal. This brings us back to the choice I talked about at the end of the Baraboo episode. The choice over how we steward the earth, how we relate to and use its resources and gifts. To make this choice, to make these complex and nuanced decisions, we need the deep-time perspective of geologic history, to orient ourselves and see the vast context around the decisions we're making about our planet. We're but a small part of this geologic story, and I say this not to make you feel insignificant, but to highlight how tenuous our grasp is on our place in the world, and to show you the importance of understanding how we fit into the planet's grand story. Thanks for listening. Now, there's a chance that some of you listeners are in positions where you might be teaching earth science in Wisconsin and the Lake Superior region. If so, I want to hear from you. Have you ever thought about using podcasts in your teaching? Could you use Under Our Feet to enhance your curriculum? After this season, I'm planning to compile teaching materials to go along with each episode. If this interests you, please, please, please reach out to rudy at uofpod.org to connect. And thanks to Jeremy Randolph Flagg and Jim Miller for the excellent interviews. Thanks to AGU for the financial support and the encouragement to help me get this podcast going. Thanks to Katie Demetz, who helps me listen to these episodes and edit them and make sure they're as good as they can be. And a final reminder to rate, review, and consider supporting the show on Patreon. There's a link at uofpod.org. And thanks to those of you that are already contributors. Come back in two weeks to learn about the Paleozoic, or the Age of Ancient Life, in Wisconsin.